into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God damn America. That's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating us citizens as less than human. God damn America. As long as she tries to act like she is God and she is supreme. Greetings, the damned, and welcome to Pod in America, the goth socialist podcast for spooky Draculas that believe that there's power. There's power in a union. Nope, I fucked it up again, and we're just gonna go. I don't know why I can't do this this week, but it's fucking happening. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jake Flores, host of Pod Damn America, and I've got with me Alex Patek. Uh, uh, hello. He's sick um, and dying. I'm doing fine. (laughs) He's not fine, folks. Not at all. I'm at my best. (laughs) I'm ready to go into history. Damn America's not sending their best. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They come over here. All right. Um, and, uh, And with us... This week is special guest, and um, depending on where you're listening to this, host of the podcast that you're listening to, Sean KB from the Antifada. Welcome to Pod Damn America, where unrest is best. I am Sean KB, and happy to be here. I liked that. That had a Vincent Price-esque twinge to it. Bienvenidos well, a Pod Damn America. In Univision. <laughs> that was very Sabado Gigante. And Bebo. <laughs> it's a Gigante episode, Jake. Yeah. We are uh, going to Mexico tomorrow, so. Oh, I like it. Well, speak it. for yourself. <laughs> cool. I'm Sorry. not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. As it's 30 degrees in the. Uh... Oh, it is cold as fuck in here. Well, welcome to uh, Pod Damn America this week, or uh, the Antifada. As this is a cross pod, we'll be releasing this on both of our platforms as to share in the um, the extremely niche market that we've both cornered being i think i'd like i feel comfortable saying the top two at least goth socialist podcasts on the internet probably top two as it happens i think that's totally fair to say and uh you know antifada has already a series called history as a weapon which i have done and will continue to do and i'm happy to have some of the damned join us in our mission of making history great again oh hell yeah it can be dangerous to share content. But that's what we're doing. Content is a weapon. <laughs> Noam Chomsky. That's a, a real quote. Manufacturing content. Um, yeah, definitely <laughs> if you are one of the damned and um, want to check out some great Antifada content, uh, I would recommend listening to Sean's episode on uh, historic materialism. Did I get that right? Yeah, historical Historical materialism. Um very illuminating stuff. Um, I quite enjoyed it. So, yeah, uh, this will be a good uh, sort of crossing of our various streams, given that we're uh, we're going to talk a little history today, which Learning is something be fun. that if you've been listening to the, to the 
to Pod Damn America, you might have caught on that our grift is that uh, we do a smart one of these about once every four episodes, <laughs> and then we kind of fuck off and talk about the news. Damn, that's what we've been doing wrong. <laughs> we try to be serious all the time. Fuck. Should um, be hanging out with more comedians, I tell you. It's a mistake. Yeah, yeah, we fucked up. We done goofed. You could have more uh, uh, dog-themed episodes. Well, we just had a 30-minute conversation about cat aids. So uh, maybe you guys can come on as consultants or something. It's not as bad as human aids. And I'll go on the record about that. <laughs> I mean, you're pretty sick right now. Uh, what have you been getting into, man? Just Short that. hairs, long hairs, tabby cats, street cats. What, what's? Yeah. It um. was tabby cats. Let's move on. <laughs> Alex has been cruising for tabby cats. He's been, <laughs> he's been, <laughs> he's been hanging out in that neighborhood we talked about in the last episode where those big dogs, anthropomorphic dogs, hang out. But it's just cruising out of the side of his car for um, like the cats from the Cats musical, just like uh, <laughs> hey, you like the party? <laughs> some some tabby cat wanders up to him. Sorry, I've been watching The Deuce. Uh, now all I can think about is... Oh, great show. Yeah. Class um, struggle in that show, too. I know. Very topical. And never talk to uh, David Simon on Twitter, because it's insane. He makes these great shows, and then he just gets on Twitter and yells at you for being in the DSA. He's one of the classic uh, waffle fuck guys. <laughs> he takes two words and puts them together and gets you with them. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that yeah. really lame type of old white guy cursing yeah. where you're like, uh, dick biscuit. Yeah. <laughs> like you were talking in your uh, podcast, in your episode about your sister podcast right uh-huh i remember that oh yeah 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 uh, that was a real boost scare for me hey ass moron <laughs> hey that. the midterms are important <laughs> <laughs> anyways um thank you for joining us this week um without further ado we should probably get into our topic for the week we'll be doing a deep dive on the history of the iww the motherfucking wobblies um you may be familiar with uh, being that they are the uh, uh, probably longest standing labor organization in American history. Am I getting that right? No. no. Nope, not even close. The, the, the <laughs> AFL, but you're not that far off. It's mm. only about 20, 20 years difference. But Hey, who's counting? <laughs> not this me. This is a fact-based podcast. <laughs> um, Leave the facts to us, Jake. I will be doing exactly that, as this week's episode will be helmed by Alex Patak, who will be All leading right. us through IWW history. Well, Take it away, Alex. Um, I think I'd like to approach the subject at first. With a bit of um, conjecture and hearsay, you know. So, what is what is what does everyone think of when you think of the IWW, the industrial workers of the world? Uh, you know that they're wobblies, but what is a wobbly? Jake, uh, let's all say what we think a wobbly is. Um, I think it's a hand job that you get on one of those uh, public razor scooters that people keep getting into accidents on. Sure. And the whole time you're like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're falling off, but you're also getting off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in that way, it's the best way to travel. Um, I think it could be a, 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 a jello that is also a boob. That could be one thing that it is. Uh, Sean, do you, do you, do you, what does a wobbly make you think? Oh. Uh, I think from the history that I've uh, gone through that wobbly is actually a type of uh, music that comes out of New Orleans. Um, I think Big Frida might be the most famous uh, artist in the bounce genre. Uh, yes. I'm thinking, you know, wobbly, wobbly, wobble, 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 wobble. Excuse, I don't mean to be rude. My name is Joe Hill, and I'm <laughs> a wobbly too. Yes, yes, yes. So in a way, it's all these things because the wobblies are all about – solidarity the industrial workers of the world are the one big union that's what they were going for you've heard of unions Mm -hmm. when people in the workplace get together 
to share their common interest as workers and pit their power against that of the capitalist, of the boss, <laughs> to team up. But the Wobblies take it a step further. Because being a Wobbly means that you're ready to be mean while wearing suspenders. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's what it's all about. <laughs> um, it takes the notion of a union, which is that you're getting together uh, with your coworkers, but um, it takes it beyond just the people you work with in your company or in your trade or in your industry and puts it all together into one big kind of Marxist uh, class union. Workers together are workers, and so they belong together in one big union. And they take their fingers, and they put them together, and it makes a fist. And then really, you don't even have to have like a sentence with that. You could just do that to people, and they're like, oh, I see, we're like a fist. You got me with fisting. I'm in. Let's overthrow capitalism. Right. Um, it also makes for a great meme when there's uh, two fists, uh, preferably two different colored arms attached to them, and they're going <laughs> together like this, and you put something in the middle like SJW. Right, you know? right, like a... Yeah. Uh, 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 you know, uh, communists, Republicans um, uh, having guns at the gun show. Or something. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's just off the top of my head. Damn, that's a, that could be a honestly meme. a meme off the top of your dome. Not bad. I've been looking to get into making a meme sometime. Mm -hmm. One of the great things about the Wobblies is that uh, the IWW uh, made excellent propaganda. Um, there was, of course, not digital, but uh, they really did have the memes of production, you know, way back then. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about a little bit about why their propaganda was so great in a little bit. We're gonna we're gonna get into the thick and thin of it, but um, really, what you have to know, they're a union. They come out in uh, around. Mm, Joe Hill was a shit poster. <laughs> he was. Yeah, <laughs> it makes sense. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> That's why they strung him up. <laughs> it wasn't just a keyboard warrior. <laughs> that was moderating back then. That was getting shadow banned. <laughs> Otherwise known as hung by a mob. <laughs> Shadow band used to be being hung by a mob. That's right. Um, it was a different time. It's literally the same thing. Um, but they're coming out in 1905. They're different than the other unions that are around, notably the AFL, American Federation of Labor, led by Sam Gompers. Uh, famous uh, Gompers. Uh, shit lib of the past. Um Gomper, I hardly know. Uh, and you can tell kind of what they're about from their charter, which we have pulled up here to some spooky music. So we thought we would just read to you from the charter just to kind of give you a bit about what they're about um, while playing a uh, terrifying <laughs> class anthem. So let's get started into that right now. Would not be goth socialism without it. So this is the preamble to the Wobbly Charter, which is essentially on our journey into IWW history, the uh, Star Wars-esque crawl at the beginning of our film here. <laughs> um, All right, I'm, I'm, hitting, I'm hitting play on the music. All right, let's get into this fucking intense crawl. The working class and the employing class have nothing in common. There can be no peace so long as hunger and want are found among the millions of the working people and the few who make up the employing class have all the good things of life. Between these two classes, a struggle must go on until the workers of the world organize as a class take possession of the means of production, abolish the wage system, and live in harmony with Earth. We find that the centering of the management of industries into fewer and fewer hands makes the trade unions unable to cope 
With the ever-growing power of the employing class, the trade union foster a state of affairs which allows one set of workers to be pitted against another set of workers in the same industry, thereby helping defeat one another in wage wars. Moreover, the trade unions aid the employing class to mislead the workers into the belief that the working class have interests in common with their employers. These conditions can be changed in the interest of the working class upheld only by an organization formed in such a way that all its members in any one industry or in all industries if necessary cease work whenever a strike or lockout is on any department thereof, thus making an injury to one an injury to all. Instead of the conservative motto, a fair day's wage for a fair day's work, we must inscribe upon our banner not those cuck words, but the revolutionary watchword, abolition of the wage system. It is the historic mission of the working class to do away with capitalism. The army of production must be organized not only for everyday struggle with capitalists, but also to carry on production when capitalism shall have been over. <laughs> By organizing industrially, we are forming the structure of the new society within the shell of the old. Next time on Dragon Ball Z, Kakarot. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, dude, that's like... Uh, that's fucking intense. Some revolutionary, scary-ass shit. If you are a ruling class, that would scare the shit out of you. <laughs> I tell you. Sometimes, like, at a, like a Goldman Sachs retreat, they'll just, like get around a campfire and just read this to each other. <laughs> at the, what's, what's that thing they have in Northern California that uh, Alex Jones infiltrated? Oh, Bohemian Grove. Bohemian Grove, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they, go, they, they stand around the owl and they like, burn that fucking preamble to the IWW Constitution like a hex. <laughs> oh, get it out of here. Get rid of it. No, no, no. They're like, shut up. It's not real. It's not real. Stop trying to scare me. Maybe Alex Stop Jones is a wobbly. <laughs> He's wobbly. Yeah, my man wobbly. <laughs> Yo, he jiggles. Now, since he took those new pills, I think he's pretty swole now, but, you know... He's a boss, not a worker, not part of the swoletariat. I'm sorry. That's how we fucking, uh, you know, divide society up. He's God not swole. He's swollen, which is a <laughs> completely different thing. True, true. I did not mean to stand Alex Jones on the show. Yeah, that's later. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's definitely a boss. It's phase four of the operation. <laughs> um, that was pretty sick. I have to say, most pamphlets I get these days are just like, are you drinking too much? <laughs> That's, this yeah. is way cooler. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, not to dwell on it, but yeah, I did get a pamphlet about cat AIDS and cat leukemia the other day <laughs> from the vet. Not as inspiring, gotta say. Mm -mm. The last pamphlet I saw was about the uh, uh, problem with uh, having your foreskin taken without your consent. <laughs> And so that's how people see unions these days. They yeah. think it's taking your foreskin without your... <laughs> it's totally different. Love that segue. So this is all just to say that uh, the entire ideology, the entire concept behind the union is so different than whatever you're going to find showing up to the steel mill or wherever you work now, uh, showing up to the Toys R Us... Uh, cashier's union I don't think they're going to have a pamphlet like this so it's an entirely different background Sean is a bit of an expert at this so uh, do you want to talk a bit, little bit about the, um, the, the events leading up 
to the early 1900s? Why, sure, Comrade Patek. Uh, I can also mention, too, that I am in a trade union. I am in one of those gompersite, um, corporatist, uh, business, trade, craft unions that the IWW fought against. And I can tell you that nothing close to that preamble would get within 100 yards of my work site. That's for goddamn sure. Well, you have to keep the racism in. Well, of course. That was essential at the time and just as essential as it is today. Um, in all seriousness, folks. Um, <laughs> I'm, folks! I'm not racist. Sean's not racist. I swear. <laughs> I just look racist. <laughs> no white guy from Long Island has ever actually been racist. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't, don't look into that. <laughs> <laughs> just, just believe us. Uh, yeah, so... Something that folks need to understand about unions in America is that the U.S. was different from a lot of, you know, from the European countries in that uh, we're frontier. We're a settler colonial state. There was a bunch of free land. I don't know how we got it. I think there were some other people there, but like they decided to go away. Things were kind of loosey goosey over in the U.S. There wasn't a big, you know, class system that was thousands of years old. Uh, So we developed in the U.S. quite differently from a lot of other countries. For that reason, our constitution is in many ways a very, how, we, how shall we say, bourgeois constitution. Mm-hmm. Ah. That's how the French would say it. They would, indeed, a bourgeois. The uh, U.S. constitution very much reflects what the United States was at its formation, which was largely a yeoman uh, agricultural society with some very large, not-so-nice plantation owners in the South uh, who did some mean things to a lot of people. Uh, and also a bunch of artisans who had these guilds that they'd work in where you'd go from apprentice to journeyman to master, but you had control over your trade and control over production. So the Constitution was written in this moment in time where the idea of class warfare didn't really seem to enter into it. So basically what I'm trying to say is the U.S. union movement had to create itself in very, very adverse legal and social conditions right because at the time uh a lot of that sort of decentralized anarchist thinking was considered european and uh poofy and uh you know not uh, what we're doing over here in this we're over here chopping down fucking trees and uh taking you know land from these people that were like it's finished if you want to eat the rest of it go ahead you know (laughs) um and becoming journeymen's um and um you know what's weird about this language uh the journeyman apprentice master yeah. the only reason i know that shit is from playing world of warcraft oh that sucks yeah. so bad <laughs> i, I went from an apprentice to a journeyman there were no die involved like, i didn't have to throw <laughs> anything I didn't, I didn't get any constitution points when i became a journeyman yeah. yeah america's formation was a bit different than that of many of the european nations because the orcs here had already <laughs> been removed <laughs> yeah the only struggle was an internal one <laughs> so basically you know just to kind of get past the beginning of this country and moving forward. Really, the the big uh, instrumental uh, historical event, of course, of the 19th century was the Civil War, which was fought over states' rights. Um, after that civil... Just kidding. Slavery <laughs> See, I, I, I really got to wash my hands. Sorry, you <laughs> slipped that that in. fucking line in so like slyly that I was wasn't paying that much attention, and I was like, "Yeah, right." Same t- Wait a minute, what the fuck did you just say? <laughs> I get myself in trouble. Uh, Sean knows a lot. <laughs> so it really comes down to phrenology. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, so after this, it's about fast twitch muscle fiber. Okay, there's difference. It was more of a war of northern aggression than anything else. <laughs> I've heard that. Before. 
before uh, over the kitchen table last night. Uh, but anyways, <laughs> the Civil War was fought, and the Civil War, because it was this industrial warfare, uh, created a United States industry that was much larger. You also had, after the Civil War, the frontier, the West being opened up with railroads and the Mexican-American War having helped us have all this land from the Mexicans. So You're basically the, a real class system only starts to develop in the United States in the 1860s, 1870s. And so the United States is a bit behind other countries, uh, but people try uh, pretty you know, soon after the Civil War, and they fail a lot. They fail a lot. That's one of the stories that, uh, of the U.S. labor movement is that we have the most violent, bloody, uh, brutal, and repressive uh, labor history of pretty much anywhere in the entire world. <laughs> so really, uh, in the you know, early United States, again, you had these you know, old sort of traditional ways of producing things. But after the Civil War, those guilds start to break down as some masters. Guilds also from World of Warcraft, God damn I should it. just say. Oh, <laughs> I didn't realize that the history of radical unionism was so fucking nerdy. Um, I thought it was cool. <laughs> well, that's just what separates you from us, okay? By that, I mean the Antifada, where we take a strict no-gamer policy. <laughs> FYI, if it's you'll ever come back. Jake, when he was on our show, as everyone should listen to, great episode. Uh, he did try to bring some, um, some whatchamacallit, uh, the games that you put on top of a table. Tabletop games <laughs> for the studio. That's what those are called. And, uh, yeah, we turned them away, told them to, to come back later. But, You'll uh, be crawling you back. With a, like the Monopoly box? <laughs> that's, a, that's a board game. Tabletop games are more uh, along the lines of, like, Warhammer or my personal favorite, Betrayal at House on the Hill. Oh. Um, but this is for another podcast. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so back to the class struggle. Bert Bill Ullman created a board game similar to Monopoly called Class Struggle in the oh. 1960s. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, going back, real, no, no, real talk, real talk. So basically, like, you started to have more and more of what we see now as a class system arise in the United States with industrialization, uh, with the spread of U.S. Um, capital across the entire country. You started to see these uh, guilds, which were a way for people to essentially ascend from the, go from the bottom as apprentices, work their way up to masters, and have some sense of independence. You also saw in, you know, the Northeast places is uh, you know the original colonies, small farmers were were unable to compete with the giant uh, farms that were out in the Great Plains. So you started to see after the Civil War an uptick of uh, class struggle. Now this class struggle went on. There was uh, small unionization drives, you know, here and there. And the first attempt at a national union were the Knights of Motherfucking Labor. My God, that's another fucking game in reference. I was about to say that, so thanks for... (laughs) I'm glad that I didn't even have to point it out. (laughs) So the paladins of uh, labor are formed. Oh, man. They mix high defense with faith. (laughs) Yeah. What you saw was, because in the U.S. you could not legally um, block somebody from having a contract with somebody else, labor was considered a commodity like any other. So if I were to say go on strike and stop you from coming and taking my job, I'm stopping the flow of commerce. And this was true all the way up into the 1930s. So every time workers try to organize, they run into and they confront the power of not just capital to throw them out on their asses or replace them or 
kill them and hire private mercenaries, but also injunctions from the courts, uh, sending in um, you know National Guard troops to break their heads. Uh, in the Homestead strike, you had workers who were throwing, um, rolling giant barrels full of dynamite uh, down at Pinkertons who were shooting up at them with cannons. Uh, that was the kind of you know class struggle we had at that point in time. There was no real legal outlet, let's say, right within yeah. the Constitution, within the framework, for there to not be a bloody class struggle between um, this growing capitalist class and a much larger and much more, I don't know, uh, how should we say, um, wild frontier Wild West type working class at that time. Interesting. Not to throw the fuck down. It was it's like everyone who was working was like a, a Phillies fan at yeah, the time. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you definitely um, have a, you know, like I said, different situation from Europe and the U.S., uh, as you pointed out. And, um, you know, what starts to happen, because this is essential, right, folks? Like, understand that the guild system is a sort of self-contained industrial association of workers you know who move through its ranks and they have these skills and they're able to hold on to those skills and for that reason if you're a cooper and you make a barrel right the three of us sitting around this table we're the ones who know how to make a barrel from top to bottom oh, we love making barrels barrels right roll people down hills in them mm-hmm. fucking dynamite at pinkertons whatever you want to do with them sometimes i put monkeys in the barrel donkey kong country it's a video game go ahead move on <laughs> not, not tabletop we'll accept it uh, but yeah so with um with the increasing uh concentration and combination of capital you start to see that guild system break down and the traditional freedoms that the guild had as oppressive as they could be start to dissolve people start to become what's the word uh proletarian Mm -hmm. they started to have nothing to sell but their labor and this whole entire work process the industrial process starts to become less and less skilled right as automation comes in you know early steam and you know factories eventually assembly lines so workers even if they're skilled are having less and less power over the actual shop floor itself not just what gets produced but how it gets produced as well this is an essential part for people to understand this distinction between what Alex called the uh, craft unions and then industrial unions on the other hand. So the Knights of Labor arise as an attempt at a first industrial union, these paladins of work, Mm -hmm. um, and they fall apart after Great Railroad Strike in the the 1880s. And then a new formation arises under Samuel Gompers called the American Federation of Labor, the AFL. If you had it in a line, let's say, just politically organized um, in terms of most uh, left-wing kind of union, you would have the IWW. They're the most left-wing kind of union. They're essentially a Marxist union. All workers are in it together against uh, capitalists and employers. Okay, so that's like a very specifically political, organized type of union. Um, They don't come along till later. Next up on the scale, if you're moving rightward, you have industrial unions. That means if you work, you the three of us make barrels, and we oh, work at the barrel company. Bad barrels. Oh, the Cracker Barrel. <laughs> the Cracker Barrel. <laughs> they need a fucking union, but anyway. <laughs> Actually, our company's called the Barrel Crackers. <laughs> we're we're uh, strike breakers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're part of the AFL, and that we're racist. Um, <laughs> it's the only part. <laughs> That's our preamble. So it's just th- one word that starts with an N. <laughs> and you gotta you gotta jump in here if I'm wrong. But so we're making barrels. Good so far. We're yeah. the barrel crackers. Yeah. Um, if we were in an industrial the union, Dixie Chicks opening band, <laughs> <laughs> the barrel crackers. God damn it. Uh, 
He's too sick for this kind of shit, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> Get like every third word out. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, uh, if the barrel crackers are in a uh, industrial union, we would be unionized not only with the people who put the barrels together, but with the people who uh, bring the wood in, uh, with the people who uh, put the monkeys in the barrel. All yes. of us together are in the barrel-making industry, Indeed. and so we are organized together, and, <laughs> and we meet up <laughs> and uh, uh, go on strike when the barrel police are <laughs> <laughs> are sticking it to us oh, and sorry, we can't so, eat no more. So that's <laughs> industrial or craft? That's industrial. That's craft would be if, uh, it was just if the, the barrel crackers – just the people who put the barrels together are together in a union. Or even worse, as was the case uh, in, like, in the period that we're talking about, the late 19th century, um, Jake, you know, takes the wood for the barrel and sets it up. I'm the one that puts that, like, ring around it. Right. You know, and then Alex is the one that cuts the top and the bottom off, puts the suspenders on it, and then wears it as he walks around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, the, the final form of production. <laughs> yes, that's right. So we would yeah. each be represented separately within that. Also you know? known right, as being nude in the job. past. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone was just in a barrel. <laughs> and then jumping down a waterfall for some reason. <laughs> Uh, anyway, this Simple is how pleasures th- of the 19th century. <laughs> this fits into the diagram because um, as you're moving farther along to the right of your labor organization, you're getting more and more alienated from your other workers around you on the left. So if just the barrel putting together team is in a union together, they're kind of pitted against the people who bring the wood in. Interesting. Uh, but you're at a more specific point for labor um, – to, to uh, fight for specific trades and labor. So the AFL is is a notoriously like corrupt um, organization for a lot of reasons. Like, again, they're racist. Uh, and the they, AFL, they are that's not the – That's the football league that Donald Trump started in the 90s. <laughs> You're thinking of the XFL. <laughs> oh, never mind. Throw out all of the research I've done for this podcast. AFL is America's funniest <laughs> – <laughs> but was also Lapp- racist. <laughs> yeah. It was Donald Trump's football team. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The one unifying team. factor here. The sport that racism built. Anyway, the more you break these things up, the easier it is to actually argue for specific <clears throat> gains for that one thing. So if, you know, just the barrel uh, team wants a raise and we can leave the wood people out to dry, you know, you can actually get that raise, but at what cost? Okay, so I think that what, what I'm understanding about this spectrum of various forms of uh, unionization at the time is that we're going from right to left, as you said, right, being the more specific craft unions, of the I put the fucking spigot on the barrel, I do the one specific part of production, to where there's a, a burgeoning idea of, wait a minute, if we include more people and make this an entire industrial union, then we have more solidarity and we're less divided and we're less able to be manipulated by the bosses until we get to this ultimate fucking light bulb idea, which is the IWW being one big fucking union. Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah, no, that's pretty spot on, and so far Folks know what Alex was saying is not just an abstraction. When you look at these uh, labor struggles that are happening, you know, around the time that the AFL is being formed, 
what the bosses would do is they would literally, you know, there'd be maybe 500 workers who would be doing very skilled tasks. They would be under an AFL union. They'd be taken care of very, very well. They were often native born or, you know, assimilated. Uh, and then you'd have maybe 5,000 unskilled, you know, workers within that same factory uh, who would be paid barely enough to live off of. And the bosses were really, really great at pitting those groups against each other. Now, I want to make one small defense of the AFL. It's not around its racism. It's about its sexism. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So, so the AFL, you know, the reason why it's been around for so long is because um, it was militant. You know, when you think of left and right, you think, um, oh, like conservative in terms of like tactics and shit like that. But when the AFL wanted to throw the fuck down, they threw the fuck down. You know, it's still the case in the building trades in New York City. Like I've been on several wildcat strikes uh, before. Like that sounds crazy. Oh my god, a wildcat! But it's just wow. something that pe- yeah people do it, and that's considered a very left wing. You know, military. Yo, you trying to party? <laughs> <laughs> you trying to get cat? <laughs> so uh, the the other thing to to mention too on this left right political spectrum is that it's very controversial. But in a sense, the American Federation of Labor and the IWW have a similar sort of connection to the state. In a, or, or conception of the state, because the AFL under Gompers, uh, there were socialists in it as well. Um, McGuinn was an, uh, another founder of it. They purposefully, they developed this, you know, through the course of their struggle, decided to stay out of politics, right? They would not hew to one political program. They wouldn't support one political party because they saw politics as not just corrupting in a sense, right, but also as something that they couldn't rely on. They had to rely on them, themselves, their ability as skilled workers to strike, to have a jurisdiction, and to force the bosses to sit down with them at a table you know, and operate. The IWW, as we'll see you know, momentarily, also was anti-politics in a sense, right? But they just come at it from a different perspective in that like, the state that we live in is a capitalist state and must be destroyed and replaced by you know, a cooperative commonwealth of the workers. <clears throat> Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And uh, one of the reasons I had in the intro here that people don't even associate a union with uh, a, a worker solidarity and kind of just think of it as corruption and, uh, you know, like kind of like a Democrat thing um, is because around the time of the New Deal, labor gets behind the Democrats uh, for all these labor reforms p- uh, pitted specifically against the Republicans. And then that's used against them later to pass all these new uh, Labor Relations Board amendments that end up actually kind of breaking down uh, legally what you can even do in a union. So staying out of politics was kind of a good idea in terms of party politics. Would you, I mean, by getting this right, if I'm to understand that the IWW in that, that specific way that they're anti-political is a little bit akin to like, they're like anarchistic in some way. That's that's very fair to say. Um, I've read a couple books. Again, I went back and studied the IWW. And um, Dubofsky is his name. He wrote kind of like the book on the IWW. And he describes them as having four currents. So when they arise in 1905, right, when um, they come out of the Western Federation of Miners who had learned in the Colorado labor wars, you know, what was necessary for their struggle. And it was not just industrial unionism, but for many of them, revolutionary unionism, right? Um they basically um, discovered that they, they had this strange mixture of Marxism, right? Because you see the class analysis right in the preamble, right? It's about, you know, the proletariat and the capitalist. Right. But also, as you said, anarchism and a specific type of anarchism, which still exists to this day called syndicalism, which is this conception that the, um, 
uh, the creation of unions today will literally be that which runs society in the future. So in the Spanish Civil War, you know, in the 1930s, the CNT Phi uh, was an anarcho-syndicalist u- union that literally had a socialist uh, revolution, you know, and communized production uh, within Spain under the auspices of a union, right? This is very radical to think about, but, you know, they were creating the new world in the shell of the old in a real sense as they organized themselves producing things. And then the last two are kind of weird. He says that they have a Darwinian sort of sense, the, the Wobblies do, mm. which they flip social Darwinism on its head. And it's the capitalists who are like these weak, you know, cucky, like waspy guys in the Northeast. <laughs> and they're all like brute hobos with like one eye and fucking hunched over but with a pickaxe ready to fucking destroy them, which I kind of like as imagery. And then the last cool. strain is like Christian millennialism uh, because like they they saw I'm this listening. like miraculous <laughs> <laughs> they saw this like miraculous general strike coming down in like the imminent future that would just like completely wash away like every semblance of like you know class uh, society and hierarchy and the division between black and white and men and women and you know all that good happy horseshit. So it was a very complicated organization, but their ideas, it's fair to say, are Marxist, anarchist, syndicalist, whatever. I'm just imagining like winning over people in a farm somewhere, just being like, you know, in a way, Jesus was a union rep. <laughs> <laughs> Christian millennialism—that's when the Tide Pod is Jesus's body, and you eat it, <laughs> and then you boof the cracker, yeah. you put it up your ass to get. More high on his love or whatever. Jesus dabbed for your sins. <laughs> oh, if he had dabbed, he would have been not on a cross at all. <laughs> a much different, uh, you know. I've said this before. If dabbing changed anything, they'd make it illegal. If any of you millennials <laughs> out here who are uh, thinking about starting a union after this episode, um, yet. I don't know. I'm really scared. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to put Tide Pods in my butthole. I don't, I don't you have to for Damn solidarity. Yeah. Right, fine. <laughs> I'll go from a skilled craft worker into a butt tide. Take uh, notes. Unionist. This is how you. This is how you scare your boss. <laughs> the butt tide. So you come at him with millennial shit, eating cleaning products and putting things in your own asshole. <laughs> La lucha continua. It's how you fight the fight, okay? <laughs> yeah. No, the IWW, they fought the fought. Fucking they, Joe they Hill just starts singing a song about his own asshole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's got the tattoos on his face like that white kid who does that dumb shit. Joe Hill was the SoundCloud <laughs> rapper of the IWW. He was Takashi. <laughs> I feel like you're talking about Post Malone, though, right? The white, the white guy who does oh. the dumb shit. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah P- Post Malone is the white guy. Who He's does the, the white dumb guy who does the dumb sure. shit. Yeah. yeah, without even asking. I, I thought I, you know, every Halloween I think of the Halloween costume I should have been like I think of the day after Halloween uh-huh. I should have been Post Malone and then just written a bunch of tweets on my face. Yeah, just, yeah, you know, yeah. Facebook Post Malone could have been. <laughs> <laughs> could have been Toast Malone. <laughs> also good. Showed up all burnt. <laughs> yeah. Crispy fry. <laughs> um. A bit more about the IWW. Yeah, um, let's let's start the goddamn thing. We're at, let's, let's do it. It's 1905, right? <laughs> Heck, uh, t- let's get into it. Tell us, Alex. Um, so, you see them starting at 1905 um, with their peak at around 1923. Uh, it's estimated they had anywhere from 58,000 to 150,000 members at the same time. But also that they could have had 800,000 to 1 million members passing through the IWW altogether. Which is crazy when you match those two numbers back to back. Because uh, that means people are essentially dropping in and dropping out in the span of like a couple months whenever they need it. It's just like it's like a, 
a fire department that shows up at your town. Yeah, hard to keep track of because much like, um, you know, Communist Party later on, DSA now, there's like fucking people that just join in for one uh, one action or something, people that drop out, um, people that don't. Um, show up to your fucking open mic, but they're still in the Facebook group for some reason, and you know, it's a random just, example, just yeah. filling in space. And what are you doing? You know, um, people that I mean, they say they're committed to the guild, but they don't show up for raids on Thursday <laughs> nights when it's all the good loot's gonna drop, and you need healers. Um, it's like your your fucking Patreon patrons who don't update their credit card information at the end of the month. <laughs> right, that's so disrespectful. Uh, yeah. that's the kind of issues you would run into organizing a big union like this. Mm-hmm. No one's updating their Patreon on information <laughs> yeah so the reason why those those two numbers uh you know the difference between what would you say a hundred and hundred thousand and a hundred fifty thousand is estimated to be the most they had at once in 1917 was it with eight hundred thousand yeah. to a million right. in total well that this is i think again you know i always like to ground this shit in political economy and motherfucking historical materialism because there's a real reason why you know this is the case um the fact that we live in houses and are relatively stable, you know, this is going away, but at this moment in U.S. history, you know, like we have this sense that we should have a career and not just be itinerant workers going from a mine to a fucking lumber mill to fucking go pick vegetables in the fucking uh, summertime to go travel down and do other weird hobo shit. Um, that's actually what the union movement kind of created in the United States and the period that leads up to, and of course is part of the IWW history guys, people would literally, you know, just be traveling around the country trying to find work in all these different areas seasonally. And work wasn't stable like it was today. And the people that the IWW uh, looked to organize and were very successful at organizing were um, immigrants uh, and migrants. And I say immigrants in two cents two senses they were either uh immigrants in the fact that they came from another country to the united states or they were immigrants in the sense that they had had small farms whether in the u.s or in uh, europe or elsewhere but they were migrants to the proletariat to the working class they'd been kicked off their farms they now for the first time in their lives had to rely on a wage and they're traveling around this frontier this wild west trying to figure out you know how to make a living here and there and those were the people that the wobbly idea and the wobbly form of organization really was able to tap into because you could take that wobbly card right the iww card if you had the red card and you could use that at a lumber mill you could use that in a, uh, I don't know, as a migrant farmer you know, in California. Mm-hmm. You could use that as a railroad, railroad, ugh, railroad worker. Um, it was really designed for like the lowest of the low. The, uh, they called them the bum brigade, right? They're like literal hobos, you know, guys with fucking, you know, those weird hats and bindles and shit. That was largely what the IWW consisted of. Those people would come in for a big strike to the IWW. They'd win some wages sometimes. Sometimes they wouldn't. But then when the struggle was over, they'd, I guess, still be members, but they'd just kind of fade away, you know, into the, into the sunset. So it was a very, very itinerant sort of uh, sometimes workforce. Sometimes they just leave town and your pie would be gone. <laughs> Mm. Well, the uh, the they have a, a knife for stabbing and also peeling apples. <laughs> <laughs> the Whittlers, their first uh, local, the Whittlers uh, Local One, they uh, they made some some very nice 
Very nice. They Americana. made a lot of gains for whittlers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If it had been. You probably focused uh, way too much on that, <laughs> yeah. thinking it was going to span out a lot wider than it did. That's the tragedy, is they really fall apart when they put half of their uh, resources into the great whittling strike yeah. of uh, 1923. They really focused too much on selling um, uh, uh, pots and pans as head <laughs> accoutrement. But, you know. Hey, man. Who are we to judge? The I mean, future's like, a mystery. Yeah, exactly. So uh, a bit more stats here, and I spread this out a bit in the outline, so I lost it earlier. But um, just in the first few decades that the IWW is active, again, going town to town, getting bums to show up and organize your <laughs> workplace, they created over 900 unions in 38 states and were involved in 150-plus strikes. And keep in mind, this is not that many people involved uh, for not that long of an amount of time. So that's pretty dynamic worksmanship right there uh you see them showing up in places like uh goldfield nevada in 1906 um they have their first ever sit-down strike in schenectady 1907 it's not just there only it's actually the first sit-down strike in the united states and for people any didn't know you could sit down <laughs> <laughs> it's early not at work 16 hours a day on your feet it was a lean-in and clean-in situation <laughs> well they sure leaned into it and uh yeah, the first sit-down strike, which would become a huge tactic, which is not to leave the factory, but to occupy the factory, which the CIO would do a great job of in the 1930s. But yeah, go that on. was pretty cool. Um, uh, the one I really want to talk about, so I have a few other examples here, McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. Uh, in Spokane, Washington, Hell yeah. there is an issue uh, where the workers are essentially not allowed to speak about their labor uh, problems around town anymore, I guess. This was a time period where you could just create a town law that uh, talking about uh, talking with a frown on is illegal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, that's the law. And then the IWW shows up to town. They send in their representative who's like a, they have a, a fiery Irish lass by the name of Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. Oh, and she yeah. would show up and just get everyone all, all amped up. Mm. She, she'd have them all talking about like uh, uh, hours and wages and stuff. And they'd be like, oh, yeah. <coughs> yeah, that's right. Your hair's so red. Uh, they'd say <laughs> stuff like that. Um, yeah, that was um, mind-blowing at the time. But anyway, so they, they, they set this uh, town-wide quorum. Uh, showing uh, her ankles and shit. <laughs> <laughs> Getting everyone all fucking horned up. There were times when they kept her out of prison. Deadass, I'm not even lying. That's badass. Yeah. Um, she was 19, by the way, when this happened. She's 19. 19 years old. This is one of those uh, uh, paid protesters you hear about now. but like, Bust her in for that attack. <laughs> traveling around the country. Um uh, so they, the IWW shows up and essentially makes it a free speech campaign. They just send in waves and waves of people to go and rile up the workforce and uh, go and bother the sheriff until the police show up and just start carting them off to jail. So they, their plan was to just fill up the jails with as many people as they could until the town can't afford to pay to keep them in jail anymore (laughs) and just gives up and uh, abides by the labor's demands. That's such a good bit. Like, my understanding of the past is extremely fragmented and tainted by um, my main source of uh, education being television. So I'm just like... (laughs) picturing some Don Knotts-ass sheriff just like, golly, there's just there's too many hobos coming in. Right, we, we filled up the goddamn room already. The whole town's out of pies. <laughs> Stop all boxcars immediately. 
That fucking rules. Just the concept of, like, there's just too many of us for you to fit in your fucking It's dumb just room. inconvenient for you. 500 of them went to jail and four died. So that's what's going on here. And the fact that that would happen and then everyone else would be like, this is an effective tactic. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did it in several states. I mean, it was really impressive because people are familiar with this from, you know, current events. And what the IWW would do is um, they go, you know, there are all these kind of, I don't know, wishy-washy, snowflakey type politicians in Spokane and elsewhere, uh, you know, who got their feelings heard when people talked about the class struggle. So an IWW guy would show up to town. Uh, they'd build a crib. Uh, he'd put a diaper on. And he'd sit in the crib and uh, with a bottle and go, where, where we were, we want the revolution. And we all learned a lot about free speech that day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the great wobbly Charlie Kirk once said, no. Uh, no, this, the Spokane shit was, uh, was fascinating. They also did it in San Diego and elsewhere. But the, this idea is that they would soapbox, right? So the workers uh, would often get engaged in a struggle. And the wobblies, they didn't have a lot of money. The, the key organizers, and we're talking people like uh, Big Bill Haywood. We're talking about guys like Joe Hill, John St. Vincent, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, Mother Jones, yada, yada, yada. They were dedicated as fuck. So of this core group of wobs, you know, when they called people to Spokane, they would show up to Spokane. You had soapboxing, literally. Like, they would put a fucking soapbox down. You'd stand down, on a box. You'd stand on the box, and mm. you'd yell at people about the revolution. And that was a time when, like, a lot of people were pretty fucking hyped on the revolution. They're like, cool. So, as you said, they'd pass an ordinance that said that was illegal. And then they could not stop the IWW volunteers and organizers from coming into town, standing up on that soapbox, and getting thrown into jail. And the shit that they would do to them in jail, you said the four people died. Four people died, and many more were essentially tortured. Um, but the authorities were shocked and ultimately uh, appalled and, um, I don't know, put in their place. I almost said cocked, but I've used that word twice already, <laughs> by the fact that uh, they could not stop them from coming. So these free speech battles were really a way to uh, spread this idea of revolutionary industrial organizing throughout the working class, but usually tied to a specific struggle, like in Spokane, which is about the lumberjacks and how shitty it was to live in a fucking tent in the middle of the woods with only homeboys, you know. Um, so to the point about... You know, Joe Hill and this concept of soapboxing. Something that's interesting about this. When I try to relate this to propaganda, it's interesting to me because there is a concept on the left today that I think is, um, I've taken it upon myself to make it a little bit of like a, an issue. I think that there's maybe a, uh, um, a contingency of leftists that overcorrect um, when it comes to culture. Because currently, culture, because we have like an absence of any real power on the left in America. You know, people tend to put their stock too much in culture, and we have this really obnoxious idea that, uh, you know, comedians are philosophers and truth-tellers, and right. fucking Beyonce is going to change society, and that artists are the architects of society, right? I got the revolution a... is gritty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I would argue that Gritty's not an artist. He's um, he's a, a, just a he's regular. He's a worker. He's a yeah. pole. He's a pole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I got... It's still a preconceived notion, though, you know? <laughs> And it's uh, it's a little bit more complex than that, in my opinion. I got into an, uh, a kind of a back and forth on Facebook with Amber Elie Frost from Chapo about this yesterday about um, whether or not Joe Rogan is necessarily dangerous, um, <laughs> which I kind of well, he's very strong. I'm a little worried that a lot of people maybe listen to that podcast while sleeping and then just wake up and they're like <laughs> classical liberalism. I don't know, that just makes sense to me. Subliminal, <laughs> but. Um, 
you know, but you think about at least propaganda, and I guess I feel I really like Joe Hill, and I feel a little bit of a kinship with him because, you know, with this soapbox stuff, us being stand-up comedians, we are really three degrees removed from shit like this. We come from a tradition of, like, you know, vaudevillians. We're essentially carnies. We're like neo-fucking-in-the-future cyberpunk extension versions of fucking carnies, and... I mean, it's really obvious if you read about, like, the way that they would actually get, like, the word out about um, this anti-capitalist shit they were talking about. Joe Hill would do stuff like um, fake, like, being robbed. Right. He would have a guy run around and go, oh, my God, this guy's been robbed. This guy's been robbed. And then everyone would gather around. Oh, my God, are you okay? And he goes, I've been robbed. I've been robbed. I've been robbed by capitalism. Yeah. And then everyone, yeah. <laughs> you know, if it happened today, everyone would groan. And go, God damn it. It's another fucking, you know, leftist podcaster or whatever. But, you know, uh, I, I quit the Spartacus League over that tactic. I'm <laughs> not <laughs> doing it anymore. It's uh, a real life podcast. People hated <laughs> Get more, out of here. People hated it more, more, more than Showtime, believe it or not. <laughs> right. This is the fucking original Showtime, though. Um, you know, it was a pretty good bit, especially, you know, given uh, the limited amount of uh, materials you were working with back in the day. But also, something that's really interesting historically, if you look at, like, what he was doing with uh, songwriting was, you know, he had this this thing called the Little Red Songbook, and in it were a collection of folk songs, and folk songs function in a really specific way, especially these ones where he would take music that, you know, he, he would take the tune of something that people already knew and rewrite a song with a message in it, prepackaged in, into, a, into a tune that people already know, it's just so it would get in people's heads because that's a more effective way of getting your word out than, say, you know, some dense piece of literature or something. And that's why I think there's a parallel between that and, like, why does a fucking podcast about leftist politics in 2018 need to be funny, you know? Why does it need to be fucking interesting? Um, it's a really clever uh, method, and it's, you know, it's... it's um, if you've ever like had that moment where you're like, wait a minute, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and the Alphabet Song are the same song. That's what yeah. he's doing with uh, songwriting back then, and it's he's it's really to teach you the alphabet <laughs> of class struggle. Right. <laughs> um, but it's uh... help this man being taught the alphabet of class struggle. <laughs> a is for abolition. B is for the bourgeoisie. Oh. <laughs> C is for Let's class hear struggle. Him out. <laughs> um. But it's really the last vestige of, like, um, sort of a verbal tradition. I mean, if you look at the history of, like, where even, um, you know, fucking uh, poetry and shit like that comes from and, like, the, um, you know, the old-timey fucking... Uh, the, the reason all the old um, Greek uh, odysseys and shit rhyme is because, like, you couldn't write that shit down. You would, organ you would memorize it and make it metered out or whatever. Right. And so, like, this is a really interesting last vestige of that being a way to get information out and sort of, um, you know, use the, the cry of revolution to appeal to people's emotions and get it to stick to them, uh, you know. No, that's, that's actually a really interesting point. I mean, you have to... See, uh, at this moment, uh, there is radio, right? In the early, barely. I think it's like just starting. It's just starting. There's certainly no TV. Um, you know, there's a couple of really interesting things attached to this. The first is, as you said, this oral tradition thing. Um, Joe Hill and the others who wrote that song, those songs were kind of hearkening back to um, 
social unionism, uh, which I mentioned briefly, the Knights of Labor, right? What the Knights of Labor, the first kind of industrial national union, what they tried to do through social unionism was to have the union be everything essentially for people, to be a community of labor. So it was a secret society that had its own internal courts, you know, court system. But they also had their own choral groups. They also had their own... Um, which we call it, they would have picnics and, you know, uh, sports games and things like this. So the idea of the union kind of encompassing the entire community, having a, like a whole songbook, right, that people can recognize these songs and repeat them. Um, it was also very practical at the same time, because did you guys know that the greatest enemy of the IWW was not the ruling class, the capitalist class? It was the Salvation Army. <laughs> I did not know that. Oh, no. wow. In all your research, you never got <laughs> Well, because, um, you know, when the Wobblies form and, uh, you know, they make themselves known, obviously to be a secular Marxist syndicalist revolutionary union group, right, you had to be anti-Christian. So oftentimes the mayors and the local capitalists, when they'd be, you know, trying to organize in a community and they'd be on their soapboxes, uh, they would bring out the troops, which was the Salvation Army, who had their own, you know, means of making really loud sounds and songs and shit like that. And you'd have like the thrift store. (laughs) Yes, literally the Salvation Army. It was a Christian group. They would come out and (laughs) throw old books that smell really uncomfortably like an old car at you. (laughs) This is why most Wobblies who are left over now are hipsters. Because they took all those uh, clothes and uh, because they were attacked literally with old blazers and shit, with patches on the elbows. They're like finally, we'll put up, we'll just put them on. Just leave us alone. If you throw like a cheap candle at someone, it hurts. <laughs> yeah, but so the South- pair of underwear. Why would anyone try to resell this? Hobos would uh, under IWW hob- hobo communism. Nobody will own their own underwear. Uh, yeah, the so- underwear is your. <laughs> oh man put some motors in it and make it a quip this show is sponsored by quip i was watching the majority report earlier and they were advertising and there's a stupid toothbrush that's apparently better than every other toothbrush you think you're better than me <laughs> the wobblies did not live in an era of lots of different toothbrushes like that's i think you get on a really another good point too is like how primitive this form of capitalism was at this time like we can recognize the kind of class distinctions that existed but um all of the accoutrements with like branding and shit like that didn't you know and you know a comedian having to go out and like go on this circuit and like create a kind of persona for themselves or you know a building trades guy like myself having to settle down and t- like a lot of this shit was was very much not of that time period. It was this kind of Wild West sort of situation. And what better way to unify people than songs, you know? Like songs that people could sing to each other around the campfire, but songs that could also drown out those Christian Salvation Army fucking uh, shock corps that would come out in order to stop the uh, godless communists whenever you came to town. Um, another real quick, interesting historical materialist fact about it, if you guys don't mind. Go right ahead. Um, the Wobblies, when they formed in 1905, had no fucking money. Like, they had no money at all. And people were, like, the main organizers were super hyped about doing it, but they're like, yeah, we can't pay you shit. So imagine a union official without any money. He's traveling around the country, like, in a boxcar and shit like that. The only way they could make money, and they were encouraged to do this, was by selling pins 
and pamphlets and eventually a little red songbook. So basically they said, like, oh. you go out and, like, proselytize the IWW, start all these strikes and shit. We can't pay you, but, like, you can make a little commission off of, like, that, that songbook over there. You like know? a yeah, merch yeah. tape. That's yes, exactly, exactly. what I was going to say. Like in union merch tape. They were in the fucking bouncing souls, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> they give a big speech. Like, Listen, everyone, thank you for coming out tonight. <laughs> we're all brothers and sisters. I can't, can't pay you, but I can give you... Um, this is a, a, a it's called a baby doll size T shirt. It's for women. None of them are at this show. <laughs> Buy a poster for our uh, uh, partner touring union. <laughs> <laughs> that is really interesting, though. That thing about like like pins and stuff like that, sort of going back to that point in history. Because like I, I don't know, I was just reading about that today, and I was thinking about how like um you know that tr- when when you think about like how that stuff edged its way into like punk culture that is bleeding into the times that we live in like there is a maybe possibly a historical original you know reason for how that got into diy culture that is still relevant on some level i i have read a lot about the wobs in the last week and i've never seen anybody have that take but i think it's actually there's something convincing about it because remember too that um the hobo, because we keep going back to these references of stealing the pies and you know, all, and the soapbox and all this shit. Like, <laughs> like that is that, that still exists as like a historical memory in this country. And the IWW was a real part of that, and they were in a sense a subcultural thing. And I'm not saying there is a direct correlation between like me going and buying an ouse rotten fucking ass flap when I was like, you know, <laughs> in 1996 when I was a young punk rock kid and like you know Joe Hill or whatever. But I think there is something about that aesthetic and that sense of like DIY that um, maybe still kind of lives in the United States, um, and the IWW can't be separated from that, I don't think. Yeah, I don't know. Could be, could be not. You know, could be coincidence. It's your thesis. Uh-huh. This is your thesis <laughs> now. You're in the master's program of communism. This will be your thesis. Right. We expect it by next year. I'll defend it or die. <laughs> Pins are because of fucking turn-of-the-century socialism. <laughs> Suck my dick. <laughs> I'll buy that for a dollar. Not your dick, the <laughs> Your dick's worth way much more. Than that. <laughs> buy one, and get the other. Buy the ticket, take the ride. You know? <laughs> so you, you got this. You got this great group. They're making all these great strides. 1905 to 1917, knocking it out of the park. Making Everybody money loves moves. these guys. Making money moves. And then something, something very important happens, which is that America goes to war. And if there's one lesson you can take away as just a big, broad strokes trend uh, in history is that whenever the country goes to war, labor gets fucked every time because everyone gets the imperialism bug and uh, wants blood in their mouth. And when that happens and you're in charge of making bayonets or the barrels for the, the the barrel crackers have to load up the barrels with ammunition and all of a sudden they want to go on strike you look like an asshole because everybody else is on a murder boner uh, um, i love how we keep falling back on the coopers you know, the coopers <laughs> unions like, those barrel making motherfuckers <laughs> any coopers out there uh, making barrels it was all about barrels <laughs> um and so there is a strong uh uh turbulation in the IWW in 1917. All of the leaders are arrested. This is also, you know, other big event that happens in 1917, uh, the beginning of the Soviet Union. Ah, yes. It's the time right. when people are coming out and being anti-war because the big war everyone's fighting 
is uh, fucking stupid. Fucking stupid. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. God. Even less than most of the wars. We just passed the 100th anniversary of it ending, like, last week. Yeah. Trump said some weird-ass shit on Twitter about it. <laughs> it just like, it was pretty fucking cool. Um, and then Folks, we're all reminded why don't we have trenches? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why do uh, why does Trump make me feel solidarity towards people like Macron? That's <laughs> <laughs> the worst thing about him. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's canceled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a that's a really good point. I'd like to maybe correct you a little bit about all these advances that they made up and leading to their ultimate near destruction in, in the First World War. One issue that the Wobblies had, and this was a structural issue, is that they could go into a place and they could convince the fuck out of a bunch of Hungarians, Italians, Asian child child workers, um, you know, even black, Hungarians, even <laughs> believe it or not, fucking Hungarians. <laughs> they could put out newspapers in all their languages. They could get up on their soapbox. They could organize them for a strike to win wages. But they weren't really good at forming long lasting unions locals organizations that could be organized for the future because for bless their hearts you know i I think that their propaganda is beautiful and i think that the vision they had of uh class struggle is really inspiring uh to us today but they weren't the best at like putting down roots let's say so even by 1917 you know and then certainly after that but by 1917 you you start to see already that like they're good at some things but like you know they're not the best organizer in the world they could have gone to crate and barrel figured out some sort of like you know storage system i don't fucking well actually- something that i think is maybe relevant to you know us uh as people that are involved in organizing today and facing this the the, pro- the struggles that we face today and even being in like fucking dsa or something like that is when you look at the history of iww there is this big hanging question over the entire organization which is that um is this about long-term shit this big-ass revolution that we're all working towards or short term um your you know your little individual reason that you're in this organization and you know trying to overcome some very specific obstacle that's in your time and uh you know place and it seems like because that's such an existential question for an organization with a, such a, a like with as ambitious of a goal as the IWW that it inevitably created like um, disagreements and like schisms and stuff within the organization that led it to maybe not just pan out in any way. <laughs> so many schisms. Like, let's not forget too the context that this is a time when the Socialist Party under Debs could get 10% of the vote of the working people in the United States, which is incredible. You had, before that even, tons of different political socialist organizations. You had socialist mayors in Bridgeport, Connecticut, Butte, Montana, you know, Schenectady, all over the country. This is happening in a real moment when more and more Americans, as they see this class system arise, are starting to think of political questions right like who do we vote into office what's going to be our program once those people get into office right and then you've got these people who say fuck all that voting shit we need to be organized on the shop floor you know before we can even start to tackle the bigger sort of like political electoral issues and you see that i think mirrored a lot today in the dsa this huge split between are we going to be uh, are we going to confront the electoral sphere are we going to put up politicians or are we going to organize tenants you know are we going to like endorse Cynthia Nixon or are we going to I don't know uh, start to salt unions all over the, the, the country right and the IWW is caught in this big ferment where they take the strong economic e- economistic economistic side where they say like we are going to focus on the shop floor that's I think one of the huge lessons today that and also that DSA if there's a war 
don't vote for the war. Don't vote for the don't war. For the, don't vote for the war. It's mm. never good for you. <laughs> Not good, <laughs> Not <people>. one time. <laughs> Not good. Um, it's interesting you say that, though, because they have all these schisms, like the 1908 schism. They essentially kick out the electoralists in, in the union, uh, and they go off and form their own group. Um, and that way they have this uh, uh, solidified purpose for what they're doing, and they know exactly what they're doing. They're, they're creating the revolution on the shop floor. But when the uh, the primetime IWW does collapse, it is mostly due to internal schisms. Yes, that's right. So uh, it's it's good to clean house and get your uh, motivations clear, but also uh, don't you know destroy your entire organization doing it. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe a lesson for you DSA people out there: don't do what oh. the IWW and the SDS did before you, and every other left group ever. Yeah. <laughs> Seems to just be the eternal fucking. The left is all about left. fake friends. <laughs> when you get down to it. Yeah. Um, we also skipped I, by accident my favorite story out of the entire uh, IWW strike lexicon: Patterson, New Jersey, 1913. Mm -hmm. um, during a townwide strike, the IWW tries to raise money uh, to support the workers uh, over the year by. Um, putting together a dramatic reenactment in New York City. <laughs> and so they get very focused on essentially creating like this parade in the middle of town, and they spend months on it, and they spend all this money on it, and they invite oh, the entire town to go watch <laughs> a right. dramatic reenactment of their strike. Just just to another point about propaganda and culture and comedians talking about stuff and <laughs> having a point, you need – N nerds do not know what other people are going to like. <laughs> like no, you can picture these people going like, this is going to be great. Everyone's going to love our historical reenactment. And that, look at that, and then look at fucking uh, something else from the past, like Frank Sinatra or something. Which of these things actually stuck to culture? Like, you can't, you can't put the nerds in charge of making art. It's not for it's not well, by not, them. Not only is the art kind of stupid or whatever because it's a dramatic reenactment of a strike, but they uh, fill out a stadium uh, <laughs> with workers and they decide that because they're a union, they're only going to charge workers 10 cents of the dollar ticket. <laughs> so they don't raise any money. <laughs> they raise no money. <laughs> it's like three-month-long project and then they have to cancel the strike because they went bankrupt making the parade. <laughs> DSA, that plan you have to rent out Yankee Stadium for the Ariana Grande uh, <laughs> show and charge uh, two dollars at the door? Maybe think, you know, maybe the return that of that. Grimes concert. <laughs> <laughs> We've taken it back from Elon Musk. She's <laughs> <laughs> proletarian again. <laughs> but no, that's that's interesting that you mentioned that because um, the Patterson strike was actually kind of like a reenactment almost of the Lawrence strike, which was much more of a success, where they did a, an incredibly great not just direct action but also piece of propaganda uh, when the bosses were attacking them and I don't mean that just figuratively like literally people were getting the, their shit kicked out of them oh yeah this rules and, this rules yeah. Lawrence um, you know the um, people on the ground the organizers and also the central IWW headquarters decided that um, they would take a cue from what European workers had done again 
people have to understand too that not only are the people within the IWW and the working class at this time in America international, they're also internationalist. So they're talking with people in Belgium, in France, and in Italy. And one of the tactics they had had in those countries, the syndicates, the syndicalists, and uh, the trade unionists over there, was when the bosses um, started the violence, when the bosses started to kick people out of the company housing, when the bosses started to beat people with axe handles, is they would send their children elsewhere. And they end up doing this in this great textile strike in uh, 1912, uh, 1913, where all of the workers, um, children, not all of them, but many of them were sent down to sympathetic families, often in the Socialist Party and other you know, unions down in New York City. And it was an amazing propaganda feat because, you know, what is more compelling than saying, like, look at these greedy textile capitalists who are forcing these workers to train their kids, send them it by train. So down. It looked real it bad. So bad. Like when they showed up at Grand Central, all like, you know, hungry and poor. And I have a train full forever. of kids yeah. here. <laughs> and then the best part is the Lawrence PD uh, catches on to what they're doing and tries to stop the yeah. train loads oh, of God, kids. This is horrible. And so they're like intercepting them at the train station and, and sending beating- them back. They were beating people up and like the kids were getting trampled and the whole news media of the United States was there. <laughs> this is a great idea. Let's just beat up all the children right? and we can win this fucking thing. I'm going to talk about lion wishing the wardrobe happens. <laughs> yeah, it was like that. And so Patterson even was like, they lost that one, but like um, not just because of that stupid nerd thing that they the did. The failed but, parade uh, is just the most relatable <laughs> fuck up I, I have ever read about. Oh, yeah. Good for sure. <laughs> Because you've thought it. of that before. You've oh, of yeah. I have a comedian's parade or something? Well, it's, just, it's very parallel to an idea for a show you had that was really high concept. I'd say that most shows I've worked on have been the Patterson Strike Parade <laughs> yeah. in a way. Uh, I've got 15 hits of acid in my bag. You guys want to make a parade? <laughs> but no, let's get back to the war. I think that's actually, we kind of back Let's relate this back to... Alex's very cogent point about the war and the concept of war economy being, uh, you know, the death knell of a lot of labor movements. Um, you know, one really great example of this is you had this guy, Eugene Debs, who was someone who could run legitimately as a socialist and, you know, make, you know, not a, a completely tiny speck, not something you would think of today, like a relevant argument for socialism in America. Around as many people subscribe to socialism as today subscribe to HBO. Um, Yeah, and you know, someday the damned. Uh, (laughs) Someday we'll get thrown in jail. Socialism go or socialism now? Eugene Eugene Debs would open his speeches by being like, greetings Debbers. Uh, You'd have to redo it three times because he wasn't quite in the headspace. So... (laughs) So Eugene Debs is someone that spoke out against World War One, and right as he was speaking out against it, there was this thing called the Sedition Act sort of bubbling up um, in the American government, and it obviously, you know, the term sedition, would it, the, the point of it was to quiet any dissent, the legal term literally being dissent. I mean, you could be thrown in jail for just speaking out ideologically against the concept that the imperialist government that you lived in was going and joining in World War One in not uh, a completely fucking uh, altruistic fashion. Imagine that, right? Yeah, and you, um, you can't separate Eugene Debs and the American Socialist Party and the Socialist Movement from um, the Second International. Uh, the Working Men's International, which was basically the successor group to the one founded by Marx and Bakunin before that. Uh, Primarily based in Europe, their strongest party was the German Social Democratic Party. And 
to sign on to this. And again, like the United States, these groups had real power. I mean, the SPD in Germany was a giant mass party. You know, they uh, essentially, um, you know, went back and forth with the other ruling party for power in Germany at the time. The, to sign on to the Second International, you had to declare a pledge that you would not vote for war against another country in an imperialist war because the idea, and it was a very beautiful idea, I wish it had worked out, was that the international solidarity of, say, a French and a German worker or a, I don't know, German and Russian worker is more important than the national chauvinism you know, of that particular country. So when Deb stands up and when Emma Goldman stands up and when many other, uh, you know, radicals stand up and they say no to this imperialist war in, you know, 1914, 1915, they were only doing what was kind of the traditional stance on war at that point in time, which is if we don't want any wars, if there's no working class to fight that war, then the capitalists aren't going to get out there with rifles and jump in the fucking trenches. We can stop all wars. And the tragedy of the 20th century I think maybe many of the tragedies we've seen since is that that second international failed to live up to their principles. And in a wave of national chauvinism, the German and the French socialist parties voted for war credits. They voted to go to war. The most horrific war up to that point in time where millions of working class people are killed. And um, it just really does go to show, too, that it's not just, oh, American leaders getting thrown in jail, but it's millions of working people across Europe and the world really uh, dying because people couldn't get over, like, the language they speak or whatever. Or whatever. Or whatever. The language you speak, how you dress, and you show As long up. as it's English. <laughs> speak American. Absolutely. Um, right. So... Um, the entire IDWW and Socialist Party uh, leadership all speaks out against the war. And when the Sedition Act uh, goes into effect, or Espionage Act, sorry, uh, uh, that comes back to bite you. So all those people get thrown in jail. The IWW at this time also comes up with a provision that anybody who's thrown in jail isn't allowed back into the leadership Whoa. for a certain amount okay. of time, which really cripples the group um first of all and that I'm gonna go ahead and say that sucks. Yeah, sucks yeah that uh fucking sucks uh they also didn't have a very good um anti-war platform because they're all about the class war so they didn't organize with other pacifist and anti-war groups in the lead up to america going into the first world war to have a united front against that in mm -hmm. fact they expelled any member who volunteered for the armed forces so the IWW got a little schizophrenic, too, when it came to this First World War right. situation. And in provisions like you're seeing, like uh, the uh, not being allowed to go back into the group if you've been in jail, um, are definitely you know symptomatic of the power struggles going on inside of this big behemoth of people trying to get their way into the leadership. Um, and schisms and schisms and schisms and people being cast out left and right. Um, and eventually you, you get a... Uh, civil unrest in 1918 in Seattle in a general strike. Fuck yeah. Um, I, I believe it's something like uh, starts with longshoremen. Yeah, it's actually incredible because the, the Seattle general strike of 1918 is often blamed on the IWW, but it was actually... And this goes to show you how kind of like 
mutable these categories are. There's a lot of uh, AFL, like militant rank and file workers, who also, by the way, you could be in the AFL, this conservative craft union, and still be a socialist, as many people were. And actually, one of the big disagreements between the Socialist Party and the IWW was that uh, socialists and communists should be boring within the AFL. Right and like working within these sure. this conservative group to make it less conservative in oh, Seattle. Not unlike some bullshit going on today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, history rhymes, huh? but yeah, <laughs> no. The Seattle general strike, longshoremen and also soldiers who had just got done with the war, combining with like teamsters and all sorts of other groups. It's a very interesting thing if you want to look into it. But the important thing is that it happens right after the Soviet revolution. So now not only, you know, is there Bolshevism in St. Petersburg and Moscow, but for the ruling class and the politicians in this country, all of a sudden now they see workers in Seattle, like downing all their tools and starting to actually run Seattle for themselves and distribute food and like restart production and make goods themselves. They're like, Holy shit, it's communism. It's here. And that made them even right. more frightened of the IW. They hear the workers saying, I'll have what he's having. <laughs> and then pointing at, <laughs> and then they're like, check please. <laughs> and then they say check. And then everything just devolves into nineties cliches. Shoot the shit out of everyone. Um, that's really interesting point. Um, when we had Matt Chrisman on the show and I think, uh, uh, that guy, um, yeah, yeah. that guy, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> the probably still hung over Matt Chrisman. <laughs> when we had him on the show. I think, um, I uh, I was sort of stabbing around trying to isolate. You know, when's the when's the, when did the split happen? When you know when ideologically did we sort of gain this amnesia that we have that led to neoliberalism? And he um, sort of insisted on the you know oh it's it's the Bolsheviks um, that's what scared everyone. But I think um, I don't know. I mean honestly, I don't fucking know. I don't know anything. I'm just the host of the show. I'm a comedian. I'm learning shit. But I uh, to me in reading about like um, the Red Scare stuff and the Palmer raids and stuff like that, it seemed like maybe yeah a combination of you know this whole thing with Bolsheviks and then also like you're saying like the scare of like it's happening in our state right now. Um, this. Uh, this thing in Seattle, like, um, I don't know where I'm going with this. I don't know. Well, no, I think I pick up your point. Go ahead, Alex. Go. Um, well, the, the reason I brought up the general strike is because that, in addition to the fear of Bolshevism abroad, leads just enough public support for the government to kind of just crack down. Right. Plus, plus the hammer like, comes. legitimately anarchists bombing Wall Street. That also didn't help you. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the less like shop floor type anarchists and more propaganda of the deed. Like, let's blow up the bankers. I heard that happened Fresh. after the Palmer raid, though. Did it? Yeah, it was like oh. at the end. Because oh. um, the, the denouement. Is the denouement. Because <laughs> what, what happens, okay, so you get U.S. Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer, supported by a young and handsome J. Edgar Hoover, mm, a young right. debutante. That's Dan why Hoover. this is, okay, that's that's kind of where I was trying to get at with this. With, with, with history, I think it's, um, it's more important to understand the large uh, ideological, like, broad concepts that are keeping these, that are making these things happen. And it's tempting... For a lot of people to to go, wow, maybe this one person changed everything. You know, maybe this one guy that fucking shot uh, Archduke Ferdinand. If that hadn't happened, this then this whole thing would have changed or whatever. And I got kind of down one of those wormholes when I was reading about the FBI, where um, I mean, this guy that's fucking you know that 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 uh made the red raids happen, and then J. Edgar Hoover being an underling of his, and then a person who then went on to fucking head the FBI forever. 
these are like two specific individuals that beyond the government being really fucking anti uh you know left and anti-socials or whatever they specifically as individuals you read about them they're like demented like specific people uh they have like these weird J. Edgar Hoover is a fucking insane person. And listen, not all people who, not all men who wear dresses are insane. And I'm actually quite offended. Um, I guess our podcast is much more woke than yours. But uh, point taken. Point taken. Jake, that's the most sane thing about him. I'll say <laughs> yeah. that he wears dresses. He had a, like a, a you know a job that he held longer than you know really should be held or just because it was you know kind of a made-up office or whatever do you watch men in the high castle i haven't heard it's really good uh jager hoover's in it and he's, he's a collaborator yeah with nazis which is actually a really fun little uh historical <laughs> thing to throw in there but to your i'll make a short point about that but i think it's an important one is that there's always structure and then there's always contingency in history right mm-hmm. so jager hoover and the fbi arises out of these palmer raids right which are a real reaction to international and also national issues that are happening at the time a lot of the reason why labor history is so violent in the united states is because especially out west where the iww really gets its base from there isn't a very strong um how should we say state capacity to do stuff there is not a federal bureau of investigation to go from state to state and be able to like uh, prosecute people for particular things there aren't particularly strong you know sheriffs or police in any small town like Goldfield, uh, Nevada, right? So the situation that ends up happening is that these capitalist thugs are hiring these Pinkerton thugs in order to kill, spy on, kill, beat up, and strike break uh, against these workers because the state, as we understand it, with this, all this surveillance and you know, with its ability to like, be everywhere at once, and there's these, this codified law about labor relations and like, what you can do in a strike and what you can't do, did not exist. So even J. Edgar Hoover is this funny example because even if J. Edgar Hoover had not existed and worn those dresses and done the things that he did, <laughs> you, mu- you still needed something like a J. Edgar Hoover type paranoid kind of uh, agent in history in order to come in and root out this real threat to like what they considered Americanism, right? You know, the, yeah. this idea that America is a classless society going back to the Constitution. Like, we don't have classes here. That's a European thing. If you're, you know, trying to, you know, fight the class war and you're trying to get better wages, you must be a foreign agent or you must be a provocateur. In, the, in World War One, they were running around the country trying to figure out where all the gold was that the Huns, the Germans, gave to the Wobblies, you know, to start strikes during the fucking war because they were convinced in their heads that there had to be some sort of conspiracy between the Kaisers and Big Bill. Bill Haywood, you know, in order to take down America. But, like, that paranoid thinking... Where's the gold, Big Bill? <laughs> I want to know where the gold's at. <laughs> Everybody see the gold in the... <laughs> I just remember that one. Everyone see the leprechaun say, hey. Oh, yeah, yeah, the leprechaun in the tree. <laughs> this is my grandfather's old hobo whittling flute. <laughs> Where's the wobblies at? Okay, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> no, uh, so I think it's a good point, actually. Like, if, if J. Edgar Hoover didn't exist, then historical materialist dialectics would have to create him. That's yeah. true. He would be, he would be formed, formed from the atmosphere. <laughs> that makes sense. I guess I was just trying to wrap my head around that because I read um, one of Tim Wiener's books, this guy that wrote about a book called Legacy of Ashes about the CIA mm-hmm. and another one about the FBI. I and read I, that one. There was something that I couldn't really quite place about it, and I think it was just because he had such a a narrative explanation of all this stuff and not like a like a historical 
fucking uh, uh, I'm drunk. I forgot the second part. Uh, materials. We're gonna drink more. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Historical materials, like a, a conceptual part of it. So I just I've been kind of struggling to to uh, to get all this through my head. Thank no, you for explaining. I, I think that you're. I mean, you're talking about structures, right? Yeah. So like. This is something, and we're going to get out of the Pomeroy's and the fall of the IWW, and we're going to get into what we can take from this history today, because that's always, of course, very important for our propaganda. Um, but ultimately, <clears throat> the class struggle, which I think back then was real, and I still believe that there is a class struggle today, even if it is merely that you want to work less hours for more money, and your boss wants you to work more hours for less money, that is a structural reality that exists. There has to be some sort of mechanism that mediates those things, whether it is a union or whether it is the state, right? We're getting into a point in time, we saw the chaos of you know what the wobbly time looked like. It was beautiful chaos, but we're getting to the point now where it's almost chaotic again, right? Like the Suspenders labor are coming rights, back. Suspenders <clears throat> are back, handlebar mustaches. God damn it, if I didn't see a guy on top of a fucking Amtrak uh, train the other day just riding the rails trying to find work at a uh, podcast factory somewhere, like... Everything that's old is new again, you know? And um He's got a soapbox outside of here. <laughs> Yo, let's start soapboxing. Is Bedford Avenue still cool to hang out at? Should we soapbox? Absolutely no. not. No, of course. <laughs> no, there is a Salvation not. Army. Oh wait, no, they knocked that down and put up a luxury high rise. Um, Sorry. The thing um that I've been kind of thinking about as we describe like, you know, what's going on in this period in history being um a sort of uh it seems like the other end of a certain time period. Like we went into a sort of way of thinking about things and then came out of it. Like we're now sort of at the, you know, it's something people would describe as late capitalism or whatever, or something where we're starting to see the, the um, things we once thought to be, you know, uh, completely unquestionable parts of our society come apart. Um, it keeps reminding me of something that friend of the show and previous guest, Luisa Diaz, uh, my friend comedy booker and anthropologist once said to me which is that um you know when you look at like um trump and his whole like concept of nostalgia and like make america great again and all that stuff um there's something really interesting that happens when um <laughs> when you talk to not your parents generation but like your grandparents generation for a lot of us especially those of us that are like from families of immigrants that um if you go back far enough and you talk to people that were involved in this part of american history you realize you have more in common with them than you do with the people that lived in the middle part the part in between here and there where there was this semblance of like normalcy where there was this constructed society that was supposed to um you know exist forever and then you know suddenly we're living in this strange thing where it's coming apart and neoliberal hell world i think is what we call it yeah exactly it was a short forever <laughs> Dead ass, as you yeah. would oh, say on the Antifa. Oh, yeah. That's a Jamie call right there. Um, Busque, Busque, Busque. Yeah, so that's a Busque right there, and a Busque to you. <laughs> I listened to my pod, damn, goddamn it, goddamn too. Uh, hell yeah. <laughs> um, so essentially, the state decides they've had enough of these uh, uppity labor folks, and uh, they start raiding union halls. They jail the leadership. Uh, they send away. Activists like Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman, who's an anarchist guy, do they just like put them on a boat to the Soviet <laughs> Union? They just start putting people on boats. Nothing uh, is more insulting than being sent away on a boat. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I know it wasn't like this, but I always imagine it like when they put a, 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 a I think, is it 
Rudolph gets put on the boat. <laughs> on the, like they're just like piece of wood just out to sea. Like a flow, like yeah, a, yeah, like yeah, an yeah. ice a wood, flow. A wood flow. Yeah. <laughs> Back to Russia with ye. Yeah, they just <laughs> oh, sent them out. There, that's like... why his red nose. That <laughs> all makes sense. Comrade. <laughs> he was comrade. a boat. <laughs> um, and his um, friend, the dentist, was like a unionist of some kind. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to organize the teeth. Unionized dentists. Um, okay, yeah, so the state really strikes out and crushes all these people. And public opinion actually turns against the Pomerades pretty quickly because it's so obvious how heavy-handed and authoritarian they are. But... The thing is, and this is an important lesson for now, is it doesn't really matter what public opinion is if you have no power. Like, a lot of people are against ICE, but ICE still does whatever the fuck they want because there's no reason not to. Um, And that's essentially what happens here. And then you get the Wall Street bombing you were talking about Mm -hmm. earlier. Um, And uh, that was something pointed out in the book I was reading by... um, by Philip Dre, there's power in the union. The, the uh, Wall Street bombing happens after the Palmer raids, and uh, the public opinion is still so stacked against the government that by this point because they look so bad that they're kind of like, eh, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it's a major terrorist attack in a uh, major metropolitan area. Um, um, Not too many people felt that way on September 11th. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got a couple towers. Yeah, we got more. <laughs> we have so many. It's a town full of towers. Uh, so the damage is done. Uh, labor is very seriously crippled at this point. The war ends, and everybody tries to go back to work. There was a no-strike clause during the war, as was mentioned earlier. So they, you know, the war is over. We can go back to striking again. JK. JK. Uh, everyone kind of <laughs> hates us now because they're still in war mode. And we won the war, so we look like double assholes because we were against the war. And so you have this kind of like swelling and contracting population in the Union going up. Uh, 1923 was actually like their biggest year for uh, membership in the IWW. And then there's a big schism in 1924. And. You were saying off mic that th- there was a uh, culture against unions and uh, for the open shops, and it's like essentially like right-to-work legislation before right-to-work legislation in the 1920s. There's pushback towards unions. And so uh, there's all these schisms happening inside the IWW. The leadership tears itself apart, and essentially everybody by 1924 either – flees to the Communist Party, which is actually cool at the time, um, or just splits off into nine different other labor groups. Yeah, I mean, my take on this, and to remind folks, there is still an IWW around. You can go find them. Uh, yeah, I know people that are, like, wobblies right now. Yeah, Noam Chomsky is one. Heather Heyer, Heather, oh, who died at Charlottesville, was a, a martyr. Yeah. Joe Hill of our era, and I'm not saying that ironically. Um, yeah, I mean, the, Wob- the the IWW is still around. Shout out to D. Shout out to Skip. What's up, fam? Um, but really with this, as you said, the heyday, right, and the decline afterwards, it becomes a bit of a shell of itself in some senses. I'm going to try to recuperate that towards the end. But, yeah, the 1920s, it's fascinating because industrial unionism is clearly so threatening, you know, to not just capital on the state but just – you know, law and order in general. This idea that black workers and white workers in the South, you know, 
working in uh, forestry or that Hungarians and God forbid Armenians and whoever uh, could come together with Italians, you know, and, and strike a company regardless of their skill level. That was always very frightening. And with the Palmer raids and then later the open shop movement, capital was back on the offensive at this point in time with what seemed to be a very booming economy. Everyone was doing the Charleston. <laughs> <laughs> there was the, those 20s were rolling, I tell you. Um, so really, if you were to like imagine in the, let's say, 1928, right before the stock market crashed, you know, the IWW is on their ass. There's really only pockets of industrial unionism across the country. The AFL, right, and the Gompers organization, these skilled uh, craftsmen are on their ass, too. Like, they're almost gone. Like, actually, the union density rate in the 1920s in this period was about as low as it is right now. And if you were a reasonable observer back then, you'd say, oh, well, I guess this whole idea of unions and, like, the class struggle is just a dead letter, you know? It's the roaring 20s. Capitalism fixed all its problems. We're going to go on forever and be great. Of course, that's not what happens. Um, the leaders that you talked about who went into the CP, obviously they were instrumental in forming the next great industrial union, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, right? But also those... 800,000 to 1 million people that passed through the IWW that learned those songs, that heard that shit on the soapboxes, that actually went out and struck, they were still around and they were older. There was some memory, right, of what these people had created with the Wobblies. When the 1930s come, you see mass industrial organizing with the Congress of Industrial Organizers, which breaks out, similar to the IWW, from the AFL and says we are going to industrially organize. And with the help of communist organizers, socialist organizers, some anarchists, and ultimately 8 to 10 million American people, mass unionism through the CIO comes back into the picture in a big way. So it's very easy for us to say to, to sit here right now at this moment in time and be like, well, we've lost this mentality you know, people don't understand things in these terms any longer. I am just a person that goes on Twitter and, you know, shit posts an email that I got from a PR person because they wanted to come on the Antifada to talk about the midterm elections. And I told them that we are <laughs> literally communists, you idiot. You know, that's the sort of practice we have nowadays. But in the 1920s, you would have thought the same thing, that there was no future. And instead, as Jake mentioned, you know, you had such a strong labor movement that arises in the Great Depression a radical and militant one that's not afraid to go on sit-down strike, that's not afraid to have sympathy strikes, boycotts, right, general strikes. Such a powerful working-class movement that it creates what we call the middle class of this golden era of capitalism. So in a sense, the IWW dies in the 1920s, but long live the IWW because they see this conception of industrial unionism and that goes on with the CIO and creates this 40-year stretch where all that stability, all that boomer happiness, all that abundance you know, that we always talk shit on is actually possible because millions of people put their asses on the line to directly confront the bosses legally or illegally with the same sort of fervor, maybe a little different ideology, but same fervor as the Wobblies had before them. Fucking A. Right. And then the CIO merges with the AFL and they work with the CIA to ruin left wing organizations around the world. Yeah, they they done fucked up on that part. Well by the time the <laughs> It's a long time ago, <laughs> folks. A lot of shit happened. By the time the AF AFL and the CIO combine, uh all the Reds have been kicked out under uh the Taft Hartley Act. You literally had to say you weren't a communist to be in a, to be a union official. Everyone um, knows if you say if you're a communist, you have to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the rules. Folks, I am a communist. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Jake and 
Alex won't arrest me now. <laughs> that wouldn't that be crazy if you guys were just cops? <laughs> That'd be such a good idea for a that show. That would be crazy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> would be indeed. Something we've never talked about on air is uh, how strong we are. <laughs> <laughs> you imagine if we were cops? <laughs> so, did you guys use a uh, twenty-two ounce hammer or a uh, twenty-eight? <laughs> I prefer an S-wing framing hammer myself. <laughs> Where do you like to go to do crimes after this? Yeah. Wait, union crimes or normal? We're trying to be cops. Alex is just talking like a radio cartoon character. I'm like talking about World of Warcraft. And they're like, this sting operation isn't going to work. There's no way these guys can integrate into any society. The more the more we talk about like the just level of dysfunction, sounds like it could be true. <laughs> it's like the parade, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. Cops have equally dumb ideas. The best laid plans of nice and men. <laughs> so yeah. I I would say, like, to, in conclusion on the Wobbly stuff, because we passed through a lot of history, right? But if you look at what the IWW, the leadership and the rank and file, uh, were confronting was a period where industry was changing, automation was coming in, people were being de-skilled, which means they were, were uh, replaceable. You had a migratory, precarious workforce. Um, if you look back at that moment, similar to what Jake said, kind of feels like we're back in that era. It kind of feels like, I don't know, my thesis is that that boomer generation that lived through the, these great golden years of capitalism, that was the aberration. That that's was, exactly right? what I think Luisa was getting at and yeah. something that I think is like, yeah, that's it's so weird because we're experiencing, you know, a like a parallax distortion about it where it seems your intuition would tell you this is the aberration and that was normal. But then if you look at things in a historical context, it very much seems that that's not the case at all. My grandfather used to go down and he's one of the, he's, he's before the boomers in Queens. He used to go down to the railroad yard and he would go and get the coal that fell off of the cars and he'd bring them home to their little Archie bunker house in Queens because that's how they could heat their house. We're not that far away from that history. And yeah. one of the great things I'll say about the IWW that exists today is that it has what, in a sense, the DSA also has to an extent, which is it, it, there's a historical memory there. And there's also an institutional memory of struggles past that we can tap into, right, that we can potentially uh, use, you know, to inspire ourselves and, and, and those around us in order to, you know, not be the IWW, although that's fine, but, you know, Bring that fucking class struggle back home, baby. Goddamn right. That's, uh, I would say, the Antifada mindset. Uh, yeah, I'd say it's damned as fuck. Goddamn fucking right. Damn this has ass. been... Um... <laughs> Was that your impression of me? Fuck you. <laughs> Dead ass. I'm Sean KB from the Antifada. We are totally not cops. Yeah. Don't steal my pie. Stop resisting. <laughs> I don't know what that was. Bobo core forever. <laughs> That was just Vincent Price chiming back in. <laughs> Dead ass. Dead ass. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, if anyone, unless anyone else has a really solid, uh, you know, point to put on the end of this, I think maybe uh, that was two hours of cross podcast about Fuck the IWW. Yeah. Did we do it? It's a beautiful synthesis. <laughs> it is indeed. Hasta la victoria siempre. Yeah. Well, fucking A, Sean, KB, thank you for joining us, and uh, thank you... Everyone for listening as we uh, we went through uh, a little bit of history of labor there. Um, Jake Flores, thank you for appearing again on the Antifada. <laughs> first time on History as a Weapon. And Alex Patek, as a first-time guest, you get 
an IWW red car. All right. <laughs> yeah, Thanks for dude. having me, Sean. You got You're a, our first cop. You got a compilation CD from uh, fucking Joe Hill with a bunch of <laughs> shitty fat records bands on it instead of payment. Uh, <laughs> you said I was going to say Hellcat. <laughs> you, you made it even worse. <laughs> yeah. I, just, uh, I was just drawing from experience there. Uh, Anyways, right. um, thank you for listening. Thank you, The Damned. Thank you, The Antifadis listeners. Um, before I get out of here, I guess I should plug all our normal stuff. Obviously, rate, review, subscribe, listen to The Antifada, listen to pod damn america um if you guys came out to yoko my live stand-up show the other night thank you for coming sorry there were no seats that was a little weird we're gonna fix it next time around a little bit of a snafu but uh show's going strong um yeah and uh you know as always uh patreon.com slash pod america for bonus episodes and everything and uh i'm going on tour again so if you're uh, a fan and you listen from um any part of the country ranging from Texas to, I'd say, the Southwest. That sounds like a that's where I'm sort of headed next. Um, keep, keep, keep track. Look at my uh, my website and my pinned tweets. I think I'm going back on the road with my pal Mishka Shubali, the guy I worked with last time around. And uh, I think we're going to head from about Texas up maybe to California. So, you know, keep uh, keep just track of that. Anything, Alex? Yes, come to Paid Protests, November 24th. We're working with Electoral in the delicious sin of electoralism at Mayday Space <laughs> at 7 p.m. Debs will be proud. We got a hot lineup. <laughs> you want to be there. It's going to be fun. Uh, come get drunk with us. Anything for you? Yes. So uh, these guys are talking about tours. Uh, we are taking our own personal tour to Mexico because we need a vacation from podcasting. It's brutal work. So um, while you sign up for Pod Damn America, which you damn should, and while you're on your way to going to see live shows with these two wonderful gentlemen, you can also sign up to be a patron of The Antifada at patreon.com slash theantifada, where you get ridiculous, stupid bonus material that's mostly just us talking shit and audio riot porn. And um, you can also be part of our Discord community and uh, hang out with us online, you know, like real fucking late capitalist uh, subjects. Folks, don't you want to be part of a community? <laughs> Dead ass. <laughs> Hell yeah. Dead ass, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>